Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to Genuine Humans podcast, and I'm here, as always, with my lovely co-host, Wendy Christie. Hello, Wendy. How are you doing? Good morning. Yes, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, and I'm also itching to get on and introduce our guest because it's someone that I admire greatly and we are delighted to have with us today Jenny Thompson who is social media director at W Communications. Now Jenny has worked in digital and social for well 15 years client side agency side and also and this is why I'm so excited because she's a bit of a legend in our industry working for brands including Aldi, Huawei, Primark, Boots and also the very famous Weetabix campaign, which we'll go into later. So welcome, Jenny. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you both so much for uh, for having me and inviting me along. I'm um, yeah excited. Can't wait to, to spend the next hour with you. So Jenny, as you know uh, from our podcast, the first bit is we just want to hear all about your career path. So can you tell us a bit, how did you get into this the game of social. <laughs> How did you get to where you are now? And and just tell us about your, your early career. Gosh, a game it really is, isn't it? <laughs> um, and yes, I feel, feel like I've been on sort of a snakes and ladders journey, I suppose, over, uh, over the last uh, 15 or so years. It's longer than I care to remember. Where did it all begin? Uh, I studied journalism at university, um, which I guess is not an obvious link, but definitely was a really enjoyable period of time. I went to the University of Lincoln. Um, I chose it because it was small enough to, um, you know, not feel too overwhelming, um, but big enough and had sort of and some incredible media sort of attributes and credentials at the time that, uh, you know, sort of felt like a really good stepping stone for whatever came next. But it was also close enough just about to home to be able to nip home if I needed to. It was about an hour and a half from where my parents were. So close enough, but not too far away. I, as I say, I studied uh, journalism there. I loved it. That included everything from getting to record radio interviews, getting to, you know, do role play in the front of um, cameras and and sort of work with some really incredible journalists who've done um, broadcasts and things like that. And I think at that time, that's kind of the direction of travel that I thought I might end up going. I really loved the idea of being in front of the camera, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) sadly it wasn't to be. (laughs) I took my next step from um, university into journalism. I went to work for Horse and Pony magazine, which is, for anybody that knows me, quite a random admission. (laughs) I have never owned a horse. (laughs) I had ridden one, but never sort of really been particularly into pony club or anything like that. Luckily, I wasn't frightened of horses or ponies, (laughs) um, which I know some people can be, but it definitely, that outdoorsy kind of style was not really my thing at the time. But a professor professor that I had at um, the University of Lincoln, a lady called Deborah, introduced me to Horse and Pony as editor at the time, a lady called Sarah um, Whittington, who um, was a wonderful woman to to learn from. She was relaunching um, Horse and Pony magazine. It was an old EMAP title that the company that I went went to work for, um, BPG, uh, was relaunching. And she was luckily a very horsey and pony person. So she had all the all the brains, all the knowledge. And I came along sort of hungry to learn a journalism trade, but not with not really much help when it came to actually sort of putting the uh, the articles together. So I actually got the the best side of the deal, I think. And um, she gave me all these wonderful opportunities to literally tear around the country in um, a pool car at the time interviewing some incredible athletes and and sort of riders um, at the time. And as I say, spending days on yards and meeting enormous horses that were, you know, literally top of their game. So yeah, I I got to sort of, as I say, meet the A-list of the horse and pony world, both four-legged and two-legged, and had a jolly good time for sort of three years. 
it was at an event that I went to with Horse and Pony magazine that I met the team from Three Pipe. At the time, they were working with the British Olympic Association, and um, that was one of their clients. And I was invited along. It was a polo event, and I was invited along to cover it from a horse and pony perspective. That's you can brilliant. see what a wonderful three years <laughs> I had while I was there. I got chatting to the team learn about more about what they did and long story short eventually crossed over to the dark side you know sliding doors I guess one of the girls that worked for three pipe had unfortunately had to leave under personal circumstances and the boss at the time Eddie called and said we've got an opportunity would you like to to come and join us and for me it was the chance to move to London the bit I haven't said was Horse and Pony was based up in Stamford which is a lovely beautiful part of the world but it was hardly hustle and bustle and I definitely think I was uh, was craving that so I bit Eddie and, and Jim's hand off and, and went down to uh, to London and started my London career at Three Pipers a sort of very green account executive in um, in the PR world. I learned a lot. I think, you know, when you're that age, I was 24 at the time, um, when you're that age, you can't help but, you know, in a new city, in a new job, learn an awful lot. And, you know, certainly at that level, you know, some of the elements are really glamorous, others are, are not, you know, I went to some great launch events, worked on some amazing um, clients and, you know, had a lot of fun. But, you know, things like building media lists and, you know, sort of selling in, of course, all hugely important to the job was not kind of, um, I guess, how I, I saw my career progressing. And I think I just sort of wanted a little bit more diversity from from my career. At the time, Kitty Care was one of Three Pipes clients. And I sort of, I guess, you know, a bit naughty at the time. Um, but, you know, we've all lived to tell the tale. It sort of swapped back and Kitty Care were going through a very exciting period being bought, um, just having been acquired by Morrison's the Supermarket to launch their dot-com business. And my client at the time called and said, we need someone to come up and look after our PR, but also, you know, social media. They were a retail, uh, an online retailer dot com business, and they knew um, how important digital and, and social was going to be for them. You know, it was that time, sort of 10 or so years ago, that um, mums were really, well, parents were really, you know, sort of embracing the internet and looking for that um, camaraderie and community in amongst sort of what were, you know, amazing, but very difficult times, um, you know, having just sort of brought new children into the world and, and been, you know, sort of living on no sleep and things. So I gladly hopped on the train back towards Stamford. I ended up back in Peterborough. So I've sort of been up and down the A1 more than I care to remember. Um, but I actually left London after three years and, and moved back up a bit further north. I wouldn't call it up north, but a bit further north and went to work at Kitty Care. I was there for three years um, and it was without question, I think one of the happiest times in my career. I absolutely loved it. Um, as I said, they'd just been acquired by Morrison's, but with that came a huge cash injection for Kitty Care. And one of the things that we were able to do was um, launch 11 enormous, and I mean huge, superstores um, around the country of which, you know, bringing influencers into and creating awareness for in local communities was a huge um, part of our, our play. And that very much fell to me. So yes, spent a lot of time again on the road and kind of traveling all different places and opening, as I say, ginormous superstores. But more importantly, was part of an absolutely incredible team. As I say, the, the business was on a huge growth trajectory and they bought the best of the best in to develop, as I say, that Morrisons.com architecture, but also kind of really launch Kitty Care into um, a physical space as well. It was a privilege to be a part of what ended up being sort of a 40 strong marketing team uh, at the time and, and obviously a huge learning curve for me um, met some incredible people there who I'm very lucky still kind of feature in my life in in some ways mostly as mentors but uh, yeah just an amazing part of of my world an amazing opportunity so to really sort of because I can imagine they they were very strong on social and and very receptive of your ideas as well when I was uh, thinking back over this, I actually remember I launched Kitty Care onto Instagram. Um, you know, as I say, if you sort of think back to the timeline and I, I did this little bit of a deep dive a few months ago, you know, sort of when you're 
gazing, navel gazing back into what you've done. And I was scrolling all the way back through their uh, their content and saw that, you know, the filters that we used on Instagram at that point. And I was like, I don't think that was our strongest time. But yeah, uh, yeah it was, um, it was, you know, a really fantastic um, thing to do. We launched something called Very Important Baby, which was a VIB service. And that was all about kind of bringing parents together in a in a sort of digital forum to share their experiences but also their product recommendations and you know being able to to sort of have that group of of people together um you know sort of advocating for for your business um in a in a social space was fantastic unfortunately that came to an end i was made redundant uh, morrison's chose to sell the business um almost as quickly as they bought it i suppose and a lot of the team were made redundant including myself but I think, you know, Peterborough had been very kind to me. I loved it. I met some amazing friends there. But I um, was ready, I think, to come back to the hustle and bustle of London. So back down the A1 I went and <laughs> joined Red Consultancy um, as a part of Shiny Red, which was their social and digital offering. There it was, again, a real learning curve. I think the theme throughout all of this, I think, will be how much I learn at each stage of the journey. But working as part of, you know, a fully fledged um, social team, there were about eight of us. We worked across a number of different clients from Boots to Rackspace, which was a tech client. But one of the sort of major f- establishing um, clients for us um, was winning the Aldi account, which I worked on and led for about three years um, of the four that I was at Red for. It was wild quite the ride <laughs> working for a, a disruptor a, um, a challenger brand um, at the time when the supermarket industry was really kind of up for grabs and, and sort of really sort of changing its pace and shape um, was a really exciting thing to be able to do but it came with you know huge pressures and huge challenges and it was very much something that I threw myself into um, probably a little bit too hard and and um, at the end of my time at Red I was ready for a little bit of a break so I took I was in a very fortunate position to be able to take a bit of a sort of pause I suppose you would call it a bit of a reset and had a few months off did a little bit of traveling and went to India and then came back rested and refreshed and ready to start my new job at Frank and again an incredible agency one that I'm very proud to have said I've had a um, a stint at Andrew Block um, and Alex Greer were both there at the time um, and yeah to sort of work alongside them was uh, an incredible Again, an incredible learning curve, um, Blocky in particular, sort of one of those guys that you just you just can't help but learn from and admire. I was brought in there to basically set up their social team. They didn't have one. There was one very eager sort of account manager who was sort of trying to do a bit of everything. But they realised, and, you know, rightly so, that social was a huge opportunity for their business. Um, and, you know, it was what their clients were wanting and needing. So they looked to me um, as their head of social to basically establish that team. Um, and I'm very proud to say that in the sort of three years that I was there, we grew from that one single person to a team of eight, um, including a small studio and went on to, um, you know, win I call them sort of social first or standalone clients. Um, you know, we weren't reliant on the PR um, team's uh, clientele and and, um, and contacts. We had gone out and won our own business and therefore became a very sort of successful division within the agency. One of those clients was indeed Weetabix tomorrow that you've mentioned. And um, yes, I'm very, very proud of the work that we did there. The Weetabix and Beans phenomenon, which... And I don't think that's tooting my own horn too much by saying it's a phenomenon, but um, it was definitely a moment, let's put it that way. And um, it's something that I'm very, very proud of being able to, you know, have worked with an amazing team to deliver and really sort of be able to see the success and and, and impact that it had um, on the business as well. You know, I think social is sometimes a bit of a challenge, isn't it, to tangibly show the success of which um, your work has has. Um, or, the impact your work has had on a business and that one was definitely something I could sort of hold up and say you know sales increased awareness increased you know recognition and brand recall increased and um, yeah it was a real I guess crowd, uh, sort of jewel in in my uh, career crown. I think you have every right to call it a moment it's absolutely <laughs> fine I think it's one of those ones that you know sometimes things happen in our industry and we all get excited about it but this is definitely one of those ones that crossed over 
became completely mainstream that lots of you know when my friends are talking about things who are not in the industry you know that it's been a real crossover moment so I think the two bits for me was when Ant and Deck um asked somebody on their Saturday night takeaway um it was in their quiz and they said oh what did Weetabix or what did people put on Weetabix this week for the first time and I was like oh my god <laughs> Ant and Deck are talking about my campaign <laughs> and I think uh one of the the MPs for um, the local constituency up in uh, Kettering was also talking it's about the House of Commons and I was like okay this is out of hand actually yeah this has actually really got out of hand <laughs> But I guess I, I'm hungry. I want to, to keep pushing and continuing up the career path. Frank is a brilliant and, and well-formed agency, but it's, you know, I think smaller than a lot of people would realise. And I wanted the opportunity to really push into that senior leadership and I guess director kind of role, which W Communications approached me with um, the opportunity to to have. And uh, and I grasped it with both hands. Again, W is, um, you know, industry renowned. And I'm very proud to have say I've, I've managed to um you know sort of be there for a couple of years and and again learned huge amounts warren is a force to be reckoned with and um i have uh watched um with awe as to sort of how he's sort of runs the business and kind of you know has grown it as quickly and as as um sort of comprehensively as he can as he has but yeah i was brought into um to I kind of do the same thing um, as I had done at Frank, although they had a social division at W and I was brought in to kind of, I guess, grab the reins a little bit and try and work out how we could make it profitable, how we could make it a bit more effective for um, the clients that we had, but equally look at trying to grow grow our services and um, grow our clients again from a, a social first perspective or a social only perspective. Um, and that's where you find me now, really. And um, that's kind of the job at hand. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. It's a really, really interesting journey. And if you don't mind, I'd like to go even further back to your childhood. I'm sorry, we haven't provided a couch for you to. But uh, we're always interested to explore how people's childhood experiences and what you were like as a child influenced where you've got to so far in your in your career, in your life. So can you talk about what you were like as a kid? Yes, happily. I think... I don't think it's a particularly obvious thing, but then I say it to people and they're like, oh yeah, we saw that coming. Um, I'm an only child, which as I say, I like to think I kind of, it's not, I'm not a stereotypical only child, but then maybe I don't really know what (laughs) the other looks like. But yeah, I'm an only child. And as a result, I guess my mum and dad are a huge factor um, and impact on my life. Um, I call us the tripod in the fact that we have sort of the ability to kind of, just about sort of stand up on two legs if we need to but ultimately we kind of operate very much as a three as healthy or unhealthy as that might be um (laughs) we kind of uh yeah we very much kind of do things together and as a result yeah even now they still have sort of you know a big impact on uh, on my life and my my career path and my uh, my personal life as well as I say more so than probably um is healthy but uh yeah I adore them and I'm very grateful for all of the opportunities that they've given me really you know there's no question that you know without my parents I wouldn't have been able to you know go through university like I did and they have championed me throughout um you know some interesting um decisions from a career perspective some challenging decisions from in a personal perspective and yeah they uh, they remain my biggest fans which I'm as I say forever grateful for but sort of looking back to what we were um, like as as a family when I was growing up they 100% gave me the the travel bug my dad worked in the printing industry, uh, worked in newspapers. Um, so maybe that's kind of where I fell into journalism from. But um, it was definitely dad actually that said, oh, you like writing. Why don't you give um, journalism a go? So, yeah, I think he definitely helped sway me in that way. But uh, we had the opportunity as a family to move to the States um, when I was eight. And we spent a very, very happy sort of three and a half, four years out there um, living in Chicago and had the opportunity obviously from my perspective, to embrace and enjoy a school career there. For a few years, yes, I I was able to go to an American elementary school, um, which was, I personally think, an incredible experience. It was something that I um, am very grateful to have had. And I think definitely shaped me from an education perspective um, and went on to then sort of, you know, I think, 
probably set me on a, a very sort of um, well-performing um, path uh, when it came to academia um, later in life. But um, I uh, we we had four years over there, and and as a result, we were over there on our own as a family. Didn't know anybody. We were all having to make friends, um, and that's definitely something that I have been lucky enough to be able to to continue to do so, kind of wherever we are. But yeah, all making friends. But we also, again, spent a lot of time together and I was expected to, I guess, um, be a part of a lot of adult conversation and, and adult scenarios as well. So, you know, taken out for dinner because they didn't have a babysitter. So taken out with mum and dad's um, work colleagues or, um, you know, new friends and things. And, you know, at the time, I didn't really think anything of it. But I think, you know, looking back now, it's definitely something that has shaped how I I guess, conduct myself and also, you know, how easy-ish I find it to, to chat to people and, and, you know, sort of, there's never, never a dull moment or a, a sort of a long silence when I'm around. I can always, uh, always fill it. But um, yes, so I think being in the States um, with them was amazing and uh, and definitely something that's, that's helped form me a little bit. I was also encouraged to be independent as well. It's little things, isn't it? But I was always, you know, when we were paying a bill in a restaurant or taking things back in a shop or whatever, it was always me that was, you know, pushed forward and said, you can do this. And, you know, again, from that sort of young age, I've, you know, as I say, they're little things, but, um, you know, it sort of makes you stand on your own two feet and nothing is out of out of the realms of possibility, I suppose. <laughs> and I guess on, on, on that independent front, I... Um, they didn't push me into getting a job at all. But fast forward a few years, we're back in the UK and we used to visit regularly a a wonderful um, coffee shop called Cafe Bliss. Um, It's sadly not there anymore, but uh, in Bedford, but um, we uh, we used to visit it almost weekly and I was about 15 years old and I turned around to the lady there and said, I think I'd quite like a, a job here if that's all right. Um, and um, mum and dad sort of both looked at me across the table and they were like, oh, would you? Um, and uh, and long story short, I ended up working there for until I was 21. So every Saturday, every Sunday, and then I used to go home again um, from university for the summers and things like that and Christmas periods and would work there. And actually that's where I met one of my very best friends, um, Sophia, who we've been friends since, she was 14 and I was 16 and she a hundred percent is, is a, um, a huge impact on my, uh, my life really. And um, we voice note every day now. Um, and, uh, and I definitely think, um, she's very much been, well, she has, she's been along for the ride, but, um, you know, she's very much been a part of, of shaping that ride. And have there been other people? I mean, you've mentioned a few people throughout, maybe people who recognised something in you and, and, and invited you to work with them. Have there been other people who've given you that kind of support or influenced you over your, over the years that you'd like to shout out? Oh, yes, please. So the first one I thought of is fictitious. <laughs> um, so um, I mentioned that dad was uh, sort of the guiding light when it, it came to my university career selection and and, um, and degree sort of choices but before that we as a family used to watch Ali McBeal together and um, I I just loved her she was just so wonderful um, in an incredibly ditzy but very endearing kind of way and before I uh, I started on my um, my de- degree I sort of thought oh maybe laws for me you know criminal family law like that's where I want to be and I acknowledged myself that probably academically it wasn't going to be within my grasp. And I've always been the person that doesn't really want to apply themselves too much if they don't have to. So a law degree was probably a bit out of my out of my reach. But I think what I took from that show was being able to work alongside an incredible bunch of people that you experienced love life and a bit of work alongside. And I think that kind of, you know, that was what it all was, you know, the the sort of lawyering bit was a tiny little portion of that show. And actually, you know, the fun and, and, and yeah, life that happens around, you know, those that you work with and and who you spend a lot of your, your life with is, is very important. And I think, um, yeah, that's what I owe to Ali. Definitely. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
So um, the next person was Scott Weaver's right. So he was um, CEO, co-founder of um, kiddiecare.com. And yeah, 100%, he took a punt on me at that time. And and as I say, continues to to very much sort of drift in and out occasionally um, on the periphery of, of, my, uh, of my career. I think the thing that I took from from Scott's approach to business was his attitude in terms of failing fast, you know, and he always used to say failure is an event, but not a person. It's not a, you know, you fail fast, you pick yourself up, you learn from it and you crack on with the next challenge or you learn how to put right what you've, you've not sort of achieved in that first try. And I just think it was a really great kind of mantra to have, you know, life is life if you don't get it right first time every time and that applies to as I say both business and and an everyday life so definitely something I have him to thank for and also just as a person or a personality he was I guess your stereotypical entrepreneur you know he had such a short attention span and was also so focused on what he wanted to achieve and you literally had to hop on board hang on and just you know literally hang on to his coattails in some circumstances and I think you know working for somebody like that so early on in my career that literally was just forward 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 was you know a real inspiration and has helped me understand bosses that I've had subsequently and and sort of clients that I've worked with subsequently who just don't take any crap basically (laughs) and then I think the other person that I can't not mention as part of my career is my wonderful friend Matt Park or as he is now Matt Park Young he was my boss he recruited me at Red um, and he read he led shiny red while I was while I was there he very much taught me that this is PR, not ER. And ultimately, we are, yes, doing a job, but it's okay to have a bit of fun around the uh, around the edges. And I definitely look back on some of the experiences that we had together, slightly with, you know, one <laughs> eye covered. Um, but, you know, we had a few, we had a few hair raising moments, um, but we can now definitely look back and laugh on them. Yeah, I'm very grateful for, you know, sort of the perspective that he gave me um, and equally the opportunities, you know, it was him and him and I and the rest of the red team that, you know, were part of that Aldi pitch win, which was a game changer for the agency and certainly for our for our division. And, you know, he sort of put his faith in me and said, you know, you can do this, you can run this. And yes, I sort of almost broke myself in the process. But, you know, it was an incredible client and, and account to, to run and, you know, one that I learned, you know, masses through. We had challenging client moments. We had, you know, real victories when it came to some of the work that we did particularly on the Instagram kind of layout. It was one of those, it was a look oh, a look and feel on the grid that not many people were doing, that we had a huge part in creating, you know, and it was just, you know, a real creative environment to work in when you're talking about fruit and vegetables that are on offer or sort of random deals in the middle aisle of dreams. You had to be creative and you had to sort of think about ways in which you could, um, you know, sort of, create cut through as I say they were a challenger brand we had to stand out from the crowd and you know being part of that churn of content that volume of content and you know sort of trying to make each one as good as the last they had very high expectations when it came to came to KPIs and reporting and things like that so it was you know we really pushed ourselves out of our comfort zone but also developed a tone that was really ownable and I think that's where I sort of first learned about being yourself as a brand um, and you know sort of not really kind of bending to anything that's going on and staying true to to the brand tone of voice you know for them it was all about price and quality and as long as we were talking about those messages we could really kind of do what we liked and have a lot of fun with it. And um, and that was quite freeing and, uh, you know, a really sort of fun thing to do. But it was also with Matt that I had, I guess, my first experiences when it came to building and creating a team, hiring and, and recruiting brilliant individuals that, um, you know, helped address client needs and equally were going to drive the division forwards. 
he gave me the advice which I still stand by is that you don't hire somebody you don't fancy going for a drink with and that's not to say that you all have to be the same and like cookie cutters of each other but if you all bring something slightly different to the party and all share similar values you're bound to have a really good night out and ultimately then you're going to have good days and do great work as well in the office and it's as I say it might be a little I guess shallow (laughs) um, but it's ultimately um, it's something that I genuinely believe that if you can not only work your days with um, individuals but enjoy a night out with them as well I think it's a good sign of a brilliant team. Well let's just pick up on that team thing because I know that uh, obviously you've gone on to build more super brilliant teams as well and 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 it's a a bit of a superpower so what drives you most about building these sort of high performing teams i guess i've never really thought about it as a, certainly a superpower so thank you very much but um it's just a pleasure to watch people succeed and be a part of that success anyone that thinks that they can do anything alone is you know frankly wrong (laughs) (laughs) and I think as I say having brilliant individuals around you that you love trust respect well it makes life easier it makes makes the job easier at the end of the day so I think you know for me it's not it's not about making my life easier but it's it's about sort of saying you know we are in this together and we are sort of sharing in in the job that we have to do and there's nothing like the adrenaline rush or the the high that you get from whether it be that chaos of a viral moment or the enforced consideration and sort of slow down of a a crisis moment potentially or the energy of a big pitch for example you know all of these things are an amazing experience to have and it's just so nice to be a part of uh, you know a team that can make that happen so yeah I think from my perspective it's not about I've never really thought about it as you know building brilliant teams it's just about being surrounded by individuals that are great at what they do, um, bring, as I said, something different to the table, think about things slightly differently. And by bringing all of those individuals together, you do great work and you can pretty much weather any storm together as well, um, of which, let's be honest, there are plenty. Yeah, I, I kind of always have this philosophy of I, I like to hire people who are much better than me and then get out of the way and let them do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's a good mantra as well. And and you have worked with so many brilliant brands. I mean, we've we've talked about a few, but what are the learnings that you'd like to share on working with so many? I think for me, it's actually the realization that at heart, the principles are kind of all the same. So it's all about insight, understanding your audience, having an eye on culturally what is impacting them, creating engaging content and delivering key messages activating on platforms that reach the audience and and feel like the right time to be speaking to them and the right place to engage in authentic and genuine conversations and and getting the tone of those conversations correct you know I think actually those kind of principles or that those sort of you know highlights are can be applied to to any any brand whether that be a Huawei who had you know huge corporate challenges when I was working with them trying to convince the UK population that Huawei wasn't indeed the devil, um, you know, following sort of the ban of their involvement in 5G rollout here in the UK was a challenge, <laughs> let's yeah. be honest. And it wasn't a traditional, oh, here, let's pop a pretty picture on Instagram or, uh, you know, create a reel or whatever and hope for the best. It was, okay, we've got to approach this in a very different way. You know, LinkedIn were huge, was hugely important. Twitter now known as X um, was hugely important, but also understanding influence from a perspective of not a creator potentially or an influencer as you know many people think of them, but actually finding people that had influence over government bodies, organisations, um, and things like that 
that and engaging them in sort of clever ways and arming them with the information so it didn't actually feel like it came from Huawei for example um, but actually was laden with all the right messages to to hopefully sort of change opinion and um, and shift that around so but ultimately it was about again choosing the right channels the right information the right content and putting it in the front of the right people so you know as I say the challenge can be can be great and maybe not obviously straightforward but if you come back to those those principles then I think you know you're on to a relatively easy path and I think what you picked up uh, on before is like tone of voice is so critical and yet doesn't always get talked about but it can be absolutely the sort of the making of a brand really can't it oh for sure for sure and you know when I look back at Weetabix and Beans that tone of voice was fundamental to I think the maybe not the success of the initial campaign idea but the conversation and the longevity then of that conversation that went afterwards so you know the idea came from an insight or a noticing that using Weetabix in weird ways was generating traction and conversation um, in a social space and equally crossing over to a PR sort of conversation as well we'd had a few chicken nuggets coated in Weetabix or success stories <laughs> that, um, you know, had come before. And we kind of looked and we said, you know, this is actually what people want. Yes, they have it with milk. Um, and, you know, that's pretty normal. But in terms of getting Weetabix in front of people who maybe wouldn't consider it for breakfast, um, it was, you know, how could we do that? And we came up with this sort of series of breakfast foods uh, on top of Weetabix um, and engaged with brands or featured brands within that campaign that were known tonally to have a bit of fun. So within it, you had Heinz, obviously, from a beans perspective. We'd also done um, something with Marmite and we actually had longer term planned um, some content with Innocent, who are, I think, the kings of tone when it comes to uh, uh, nailing tone when it comes to um, social media comms. So we had sort of identified those that were going to have a bit of fun with this and, and, you know, engage them in an advance sort of strategy. But obviously timing was everything as well in that respect. Um, we waited until we were entering into another lockdown phase. I can't remember which one. It was all a bit of a blur. Um, <laughs> but the atmosphere, um, you know, sort of the way people were feeling was pretty low at that point. And everyone just wanted lighthearted, mm. you know, opportunity to have some fun equally without being able to leave the house. So enter Weetabix and Beans and, you know, we just let it go. And it was sort of this perfect storm of the right time, the right moment and the right tone, um, to your point, Tamara, and, and the right partners that allowed us to then kind of really go in. But we had created a set of responses because, you know, you do, you plan, you think, oh, what if this takes off? But I don't think anyone had an idea that it would take off quite as significantly as it did and we had to have a very quick conversation with Weetabix who are you know a heritage brand they're pretty well established and I don't want to say set in their ways because they're definitely doing brilliant things but quite a nervous and risk averse brand so in order to start talking in a very kind of colloquial sometimes you know maybe a little bit sort of left of the center kind of approach was a bit of a, a change for them but you know we had, we got on the phone and we said this is moving so fast I can't be approving every response that we make to Domino's or to you know the US government or you know all of these random brands that were sort of jumping in on the on the conversation I, I couldn't run everything past them so it was said you know the agreement was you know we trust you you're our agency you know us don't do anything stupid <laughs> other than put beans on Weetabix <laughs> um and uh, and yeah just have fun with it and yeah that tone you know we we fed off the tone that was coming in um you know the conversation and the and the reaction that we were getting was what sort of set the tone for that um for those responses and actually some of the responses then went on to be showstoppers when it came to to engagement and things like that as well so it wasn't just the original conversation or, or campaign content it showed that actually the conversation you have afterwards can be just as valuable and impactful too fantastic yeah and i know fran theocly from from weetabix they're a they're a great team and, and i think that is such an indicator of a 
a good sort of trusting relationship where sometimes on social, I mean, that's the thing. It's like it's so fast that you have to have that trust. You can't start getting lawyers involved to sign off, you know, content or, or whatever. It's just like, go for it, go with the moment. And, um, and and perhaps going back to what you were saying earlier about from some of your learnings of like, it's okay to fail, that actually sometimes you might put something out and it won't land, but, you know, it, it's you just keep going and, and something will. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's almost a gift from a, a social perspective. Don't get me wrong. I would never sort of say pop it and delete it if it, you know, if it goes horribly wrong. That's not quite the attitude, but it's fast. You know, literally yesterday's posts are so far down the algorithm that, you know, nobody, nobody necessarily sees them anymore. And obviously you do need to be careful and mindful. I was listening to a conversation around the RSPB, I think just this week around um, a tweet that they had sort of put out and uh, and called out a number of um number of politicians by name which isn't apparently normally their style um and they've subsequently deleted it but that's actually generated more conversation and 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 sort of critique than uh, than they probably wanted to and the sort of reason for their policy approach the reason for their their tweet which was all around policy and changes to policy has sort of been missed um unfortunately so i would never never recommend kind of posting and deleting and then trying again but i think you know as long as you have a sensible hat on um, and a, a brand hat on, you know, sort of being conscious of, you know, where this brand has come from. Weetabix was, you know, as I say, a heritage brand. And this was about kind of reaching new audiences. So as long as we were mindful of what the past was for them, but equally where they wanted to be in the future, then I think, you know, we had a pretty good idea of of what was the right line to toe. Well, congratulations on that one, because I think it was very much a career defining uh, moment. <laughs> so what is exciting you most about the future of social? This one's a tricky one. I feel like we're in this or on the precipice of a huge shift. And I don't actually know whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. I think everyone's feeds are curated, aren't they, for them at the end of the day. So actually one person's experience of social media is very different to another's broadly speaking um but what i'm seeing a lot more of at the moment is sort of the cry for authenticity so and creators reflecting that as well so you know everything from a fitness influencer showing that skin rolls and everyone has cellulite or um you know creators sharing or travel creators sharing their um top tips on actually how to capture the perfect photo so that you don't all think that it's just this wonderful snap that they took in a you know a quick heartbeat actually it's really sort of well set up and and this is how you do it or you know silly things of like you know fashionistas kind of showing that actually that top doesn't fit quite how you think it does and they've tucked it into their bra or whatever it might be and I think the community users are grateful for that I think we've watched very curated feeds very beautiful feeds for a long time and I think with potentially the rise of TikTok and sort of that more in the moment sharing and that authentic sharing I think we're all sort of getting now that social is a highlights reel and the way that we view it needs to be through sort of you know a slightly different lens however I think given the rise of things like AI influencers which is just terrifying. Personally, I find it really hard to get my head around. You watch me in a few months time being able to like do a brand partnership with an AI influencer. But for now, it's all a little bit scary. But you know, these created individuals who are commanding millions of views, um, probably from a sort of voyeuristic perspective of, oh my God, what are they going to do next? But I think it's really important that people are now starting to realise that what they see in a digital space or a social space can be quite manufactured especially with the rise of as I say those creators that are are sort of appearing out of nowhere and I think how that relates to brands is ensuring that they remain honest and authentic as well I think you know the social landscape is going to change hugely you know in terms of new platforms coming and going threads maybe or you know, the way that we're using live stream or, or Twitch versus consuming video content on TikTok, I think the landscape and how audiences use it is going to shift massively. And I think, you know, search and discovery is going to be 
really central to how social develops. So from a brand perspective, I think if you can remain authentic and honest and play into your truth, you stand a chance of being able to, I guess, remain engaged with your audience and bring them on the journey and remain relevant to them. Whereas if you're constantly putting out curated content or really salesy messaging or, you know, one track mind, uh, minded messaging, then I think you may struggle. I think it's all about reflecting what your audience is experiencing, being where they are experiencing social and, and trying to navigate that path. I don't have the answers, I'm afraid yet, but I'm sure we'll all work them out together. Brilliant advice. Thank you. We're coming on to the last part of our podcast now where we're going to get a bit more personal. So let's start with what's your idea of a perfect weekend? So there's definitely a British seaside coast in there somewhere. I love St Ives. It's very much my happy place, but it's an awfully long way to travel. Um, So any any seaside coast, you know, day by Brighton, over in over in Kent, whatever, sand between the toes. There's nothing better than taking your shoes off and popping your feet in the in this on the sand and in the water, even if it's chilly. Great food. Um, I'm a real foodie, so a nice new restaurant or um, one that I haven't discovered before is lovely. Long walk, fresh air, basically good food. Um, I like to read. Um, I read as much as I can, so a good book. And just generally no real plans. I, I'm a real social butterfly. I'm here, there and everywhere seeing wonderful groups of friends pretty frequently. But as a result, when, don't get me wrong, those are perfect weekends as well. But actually when I get a chance to just not do anything, take me to the seaside and just pop me there for some quiet relaxation, I'm very, very happy. That sounds absolutely perfect. And staying on the theme of, of travel, if you could time travel anywhere, any time any place where would you go I guess maybe the worthy answer would be like oh I'd love to go back and like you know see my nan when she was a baby and see what happened or whatever but I'm a bit more like I guess I love to travel and we recently went to Jordan and visited the ancient city of Petra it was mind-blowing the way that the the dwellings the monastery the the, the treasury are all preserved are just phenomenal and it is thousands of years old and you're walking around and our guides telling us you know actually half of the city is still under underground it's still yet to be sort of dug out and and explored and I just had this thing of like what was it like like I would just love to walk down this road which is you know just a pile of bricks now or you know pile of stones and see what it was like so I think I'm more it's I'm no history buff by any stretch of the imagination but I just have this when you're in an environment like that to just be like I'd love to see what it was like when you know when it was real I suppose or when it was you know, fully functional mm-hmm. um as opposed to as I say thousand years later when we're um we're climbing all over it I, I live near um the Tower of London and the same goes for there, you know, you're sort of walking around this kind of mini village. And I always walk around and I just think, what was it like, you know, all of those years ago, 900 years ago, like how did life operate and, and what was it like then? So, yeah, that I guess I'd love to sort of just go back in time and see kind of real relics brought to life. That's a great answer. I think there's an app in there somewhere as yes. well, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, virtual reality, with AI. <laughs> So um, you love travel, but what's one of your bucket list travel destinations? I don't like to visit the same places twice because I feel like there's a lot of the world to see. Um, But that said, I'm ticking off, I guess, a bit of a bucket list thing. And I'm heading to Cape Town for what will be my third trip this Christmas. But going with my partner and our extended families for um, for Christmas. So, you know, we spend Christmases together all the time. Like that's not the bucket list piece, but to actually do it in the sunshine and, you know, encourage my parents to travel, uh, you know, a bit broader or further afield is uh, that's something that I'm really looking forward to. But in terms of a new place that I've not been, 
I think East is very much on my agenda. So Cambodia, Vietnam, Japan, and also I follow an incredible family influencer who takes kids to literally the farthest flung places in the world. And they've just got back from South Korea. And I was like, okay, if you can do this with four kids in tow, I definitely need to carve out some time to do it myself. <laughs> and she showcased a um, this amazing botanical garden, which is be- built on an island just off the South of Korea. And, um, it just looked phenomenal. So for me, it's just about finding the time and the money, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So what's your karaoke go-to song? You know that I love a bit of karaoke. Do you love karaoke? Do you have a karaoke song? The answer is I don't really, because I'm not a karaoke singer. That's not Wait, because... what? <laughs> I know, I know. I, just, I, I think I last time I went, I was... with a bunch of girlfriends and we went for an hour and lucky voice type thing but it was all very sort of random I can't say I'm going to see you there every week tomorrow but (laughs) I did once do I guess this is quite a cool story I did karaoke on a random and very remote Philippine island um we were island hopping traveling around and we landed on this sort of island where we were staying the night and it had nothing other than sort of wooden shacks and a karaoke machine <laughs> what do you know <laughs> um so I got up and tackled Whitney Houston's um I want to dance with somebody you know because that's the obvious one to do in front of like 25 strangers and um thankfully I didn't get booed off the beach but I'm sure I absolutely wrecked it so <laughs> I don't think it's something that needs to be repeated I love that I may need to adjust this question in the future of like where is the most random place you've done karaoke because while you were talking I was thinking I did karaoke in Tokyo, but then realised I was in a brothel. Oh, God. <laughs> I finished the song, obviously. Absolutely. The standards have to be maintained, yeah. <laughs> you started, so you will finish. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I, yeah, I think that's probably a good way. Where's the most random place? <laughs> Jenny, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for sharing your your journey, your thoughts. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that we you wish we'd asked you? Or do you have any closing thoughts? I'm going to leave the platform to you now. Well, before I say, I just want to say thank you both so much again for the opportunity to have what's been a really lovely conversation with you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I guess in terms of sort of final comments or sort of, you know, final thoughts, be brave, go with your gut, people change businesses change strategies change don't be afraid to sort of accept and embrace that um if it's not working change it things develop you know careers are not one set path if you can and I realize it's a very privileged um position but if you can take a break reset and then move on to the next thing and I definitely would say if if you're feeling betwixt and between be brave and and sort of do what's right for you You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.